Hello world, this is Roger Corville and this is For the Hope, where we keep it real as we read through the Bible conversationally, talk about the truth claims of Christianity, and learn how to fall more in love with Jesus and communicate that love to the people in his world. You ready? Let's roll. Welcome. You know, one of the things that I usually do is record one day ahead. So I'm not usually trying to comment on news as a result. I'm usually buying myself a one-day buffer. And this is a good example because yesterday I was completely down and out with this. I won't even describe it. But then I laid there and started seeing these things go by my Facebook feed about Notre Dame being on fire. So I watched the news last night and one of the things that just gripped me was the grief people were experiencing over a building. Now, believe me, I understand the the beauty and the history and the significance and the iconic nature and how it's like the most visited place in all of France and fill in the blank. But it got me to thinking about what might happen in our world if we experienced that much grief over the death of truth or over the or over the nature of how we talk about human beings how we point guns at other Christians and pull the trigger instead of being grieved, grieved that they have false views of Jesus and it will cost them their lives, their eternal lives. The goal isn't saying right Christian, wrong Christian, but there is a point where we need to be right with Jesus who came to save us from our sins. And I am the chief of sinners who needs that more than anyone here. That's why I do, that's why I do this, because I can't help but be in the Bible every day. But I will say this. There is a time to go on the offensive against falsehood. And just because people call themselves Christians doesn't mean they're Christians. But that said, if you are a pursuer of truth, if you are on the side of truth, if you are on your knees before Jesus and saying, Lord, if there is any wicked way in me, help me to know it and to turn it over to you. If there is any lack of clarity of who you are, help me to know you. If Lord, if there is any if there is any falsehood in my life or in my in my way of seeing things, 
Help me to see it more clearly. And most importantly, Lord, when it comes to your charge to me to reach others on your behalf, may I treat them with the utmost graciousness and clarity with regard to pursuing truth. How do we pursue others with love and truth? Another day I'm going to get to a book that just recently was released where one of the main people behind who's behind the popularization of the Enneagram has just recently recently released a book where he is now full out in the open denying Christ, denying Jesus, not as a historical figure, but as the God-man who came to save you from your sins. And what do we do with that? This guy's a priest in the Catholic Church. He is a well-followed person who is otherwise congenial and genteel and avuncular and I'm sure a really nice guy. But the very simple rules of logic is that A cannot also be not A at the same time and in the same way. Right? Jesus can't be God, the way, the truth, and the life, and not God, not the way, the truth, and the life at the same time and in the same way. You can't both be right. Pretty simple. So we're grieving over a church building. But the building isn't the point. Because remember, friends, you and I are the temple of the Lord. It doesn't have anything to do with a wall, four walls, and a steeple. And I know that is a longer than usual kind of intro. Maybe it's because I'm feeling a little rough around the edges because of this recent illness. But I'm going to pray that as we read James chapter 4 here today, that one of the things that we do is grieve for the right reasons. I don't. I haven't even looked ahead. I don't even remember what James chapter 4 says. Well, I do some, but you know what I mean? This week, my friends, we are in the NET translation. James chapter 4. Where do the conflicts and where do the quarrels among you come from? Is it not from this, from your passions that battle inside you? You desire and you do not have. You murder and you envy and you cannot obtain. You quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly 
so you can spend it on your passions. Probably just stop the show right there, huh? You don't have, but you because you don't ask, and then when you do ask, you ask wrongly because it's for you. Adulterers, do you not know that friendship with the world means hostility toward God? Remember, I'm going to pause. Remember how much language God, the Bible uses of bride and bridegroom, so to speak, where we are the bride of Christ, right? So when we turn away from him, we are adulterers, uh, figuratively and literally. Adulterers, do you not know that friendship with the world means hostility toward God? So whoever decides to be the world's friend makes himself God's enemy. Or do you think that the scripture means nothing when it says the spirit that God caused to live within us has an envious yearning? But he gives greater grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So submit to God. But resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hand, hands, you sinners, and make your hearts pure, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and weep. Turn your laughter into mourning and your joy into despair. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak against one another, brothers and sisters. That is a line for those of us who might pursue unity. Let's be sure. To, let me read this. And let's be really clear about what he is saying. This is verse 11. Do not speak against one another, brothers and sisters. He who speaks against a fellow believer or judges a fellow believer speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but its judge. But there is only one who is lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. On the other hand, who are you to judge your neighbor? Does that mean we should never call out falsehood? Uh, no. Someone can say they're a Christian, but if they deny who Jesus is, the person and the work of Jesus, they might call themselves a Christian, but they're not. Are you with me? So we are to seek unity with fellow believers. And there is a time to, with gentleness and humility, correct people. 
meaning we are called to be discerning. But James is appealing here to, to unity. And how do we get to unity? The objective is restoration, right? If we're, if we're correcting a fellow believer, the goal is restoration of right relationship. And if they're not a believer, well, then they, they need to be, they, they need reconciliation of relationship as well. All right, let's wrap it up. Verse 13. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into this town or that town and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. You do not know about tomorrow. What is your life like? For you are a puff of smoke that appears for a short time and then vanishes. You ought to say instead, if the Lord is willing, then we will live and do this or do that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows to do, so whoever knows what is good to do and does not do it is guilty of sin. Broadly speaking, James here is calling us out against worldliness. Right? Uh, worldliness in our uh, our prayer life being misaligned. Worldliness um, via the presence of a critical spirit. Where we... Put each other down in in a wrong way. The difference between judgment, having judgment, and being judgmental. And I guess with that, let's transition to just because we got to wrap it up tomorrow. The series we've been on with Peter Kreft. talking about the five possible theories for the evidence of the resurrection, right? And remember or recall that, that the question on the table is which theory about the resurrection best accounts for the data? And we've been working f uh, per his direction through those from the easiest to discuss and refute to the hardest and we're on the hardest which is myth and we talked about two refutations uh yesterday which is uh number one that that the biblical stories have a different style and i just thought of a, a an analogy that might help us there if you if we were looking at two different pieces of writing and one was clearly a poem 
And one was clearly like the writing that you would see in a software how-to user guide. We would see clearly that there was a difference in the style of writing, right? Well, that's the kind of analysis that we'd be looking at to say what is the what is the literary style of, say, the, the Gospels and the Epistles in the Bible versus myth? And they're different. Now, you may or may not be a literary scholar, and I'm not sure I could go too much farther than that, but that might be a useful analogy. Poem versus, versus a technical document. The second refutation was that not enough time uh, passed. It takes a while, historically, according to literary scholars, it takes a while for myths to develop, not the least of which is because because not that long. You can't develop too fast because the people who were there, the people who would have been eyewitnesses who could say, yes, that was true, or no, that's not true, would be there to refute the myth. If you were, If the disciples were running around making stuff up, there's too many people there who could go, who could who could refute them, right? So it takes a while for myths to develop, and that's the first two refutations. Here's number three. This one's going to take a little bit of thinking, so hang with me. The myth theory has two layers. The first layer is the historical Jesus, who was not divine, did not claim divinity, performed new miracles, and did not rise from the dead. The second, later, mythologized layer is the Gospels as we have them, with a Jesus who claimed to be divine, performed miracles, and rose from the dead. The problem with this theory is simply that there is not the slightest bit of any real evidence, whatever, for the existence of any such first layer. The two-layer cake theory has the first layer made entirely of air and hot air of that, at that. So, let me just put that in our own words, right, so we can own, own this. The two, there's a two-layer, uh, one aspect of the myth theory is that there's this two-layer thing. That, ah, there's, okay, he was a real Jesus, but he wasn't divine, and he didn't really do any miracles, etc. And then later, this was added on, right? Except that, as he points out, that's not true. St. Augustine refutes the two-layer theory with his usual condensed power and simplicity. And remember, this is, this is him... Uh, this is him doing, this is Augustine's writing in the 400s, right? So, like, this isn't new. This is kind of a paragraph of his. The speech of one Elpidus who had spoken and disputed face-to-face against the Manichees had already begun to affect me at Carthage when he produced arguments from Scripture which were not easy to answer. And the answer they the Manichees, who claimed to be the true Christians. The answer that they, the Manichees, gave seemed to me feeble. Indeed, they preferred not to give it in public, but only among themselves in private, the answer being that the scriptures of the New Testament had been corrupted by some persons unknown. Yet the Manichaeans made no effort to produce uncorrupted copies. (laughs) Uh, That's in Augustine's Confessions, verse... uh, 
book five. This is uh, Peter Kreft saying, note the sarcasm in the last sentence. It still applies today. William Lane Craig summarizes the evidence or the lack of evidence thus in his book, chapter six in a book, his book, Apologetics, another kind of paragraph level, paragraph length uh, quotation. The Gospels are a miraculous story, and we have no other story handed down to us than that contained in the Gospels. The letters of Barnabas and Clement refer to Jesus' miracles and resurrection. Polycarp mentions the resurrection of Christ, and Irenaeus relates that he had heard Polycarp tell of Jesus' miracles. Ignatius speaks of the resurrection. Quadratus reports that persons were still living who had been healed by Jesus. Justin Martyr mentions the miracles of Christ. No relic of of a non-miraculous story exists. Bam. No relic of a non-miraculous story exists. That the original story should be lost and replaced by another goes beyond any known example of corruption of even oral tradition, not to speak of the experience of written transmissions. These facts show that the story in the Gospels was in substance the same story that Christians had at the beginning. This means that the resurrection of Jesus has always been part of the story. My friends, that I think is a really useful thing. And I want to point this out, not just not just this final, uh, not just this argument that there's this, you know, two-layer thing that's part of how the myth was started here, but then it developed over here. I want you to just think about the, the logic or the argumentation or the reasoning that we just witnessed here. Both William Lane Craig, who's still alive and teaches at the school that I go to, and St. Augustine, who Augustine, who was around oh, 1,500 years ago, right? They're making an argument based on reason. And when we are made in God's image... And made to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It is reasonable for us to therefore conclude that part of how we understand and communicate truth is by using reason or logic. Makes sense to me. I love you. Thanks for hanging with me today. Amen. And amen.